uh, you guys would grab your Bibles and find the book of Genesis, it should be relatively easy to do so. Uh, Genesis is the first book uh, in the Bible. Um, if you have been uh, in our Sunday school class recently, we have just finished a uh, fairly long series on the book of Revelation. Uh, I am a uh, big believer that uh, switching it up is a good thing. Uh, as human beings, we, uh, I think we just naturally uh, like newer, different things or getting out of rhythm a little bit. So uh, we have gone from about six months in 20 chapters of Revelation, 22 chapters, sorry. And uh, now we're going to do a two-ish month series on Old Testament books of the Bible. So this morning, we're going to do the entire book of Genesis. Next week, we'll do Exodus, and we'll go all the way through uh, 1 Samuel. And then uh, when we start the summer, we'll start a series in 1 Samuel. So uh, just a couple of reasons uh, I think this series is going to be uh, a good thing. First, again, it's always going to switch it up. Second, uh, I think many of us really, really struggle to read the Old Testament. In fact, uh, just in the conversations I've had with people over the years, um, I know a lot of Christians who have never actually really even tried to read the Old Testament. Um, and so I would really, I want this series to give you guys some help uh, to feel a little more confident and to feel some motivation uh, to read your Old Testament and to have, uh, um, to have some, to find some life there, all right? Um, a couple things about how we're going to do this, just so you guys know what we're doing. Um, I'm going to try to cover four things in each lesson. Uh, the contents of the book, what's in there, uh, the message of the book. Uh, one thing you may not know about books of the Bible, the authors of these books were geniuses. Obviously, the Spirit inspired it, but the, the authors were smart guys. And so uh, this entire book uh, could be distilled probably to one sentence that has a very important life application for you. So I'm going to try to cover those um, as, we, uh, as we go through these books. Uh, finally, I'll try to address some, or sorry, two more things. Uh, I'll try to address some tough issues in the book. Uh, the Bible is full of tough things, of objections people raise, and so I'll try to give a little bit of help with that. And finally, we will look for Jesus in each book. And I want to give a challenge to people who are in our group and who regularly attend our Sunday school class. Uh, if you aren't currently on some kind of Bible reading plan that includes the Old Testament, I'd really like to challenge you to read through the first eight books of the Bible um, before we get to the summer. Uh, or maybe, maybe before midsummer. Uh, I think it'll be helpful to do what we're doing here on Sunday mornings uh, because one of the hard parts about reading the Old Testament is it's very easy to get lost and not really be sure where you're at or what you're doing. So, uh, but if you're a regular tender here, if you're a part of our group and you're not uh, currently reading through the Bible, uh, I, want, I want you guys to, to take this. And, and you, this is going to be something you do with somebody else. Uh, we talk a lot here about helping people take steps towards Jesus. Maybe there's someone in your life that you can read the Old Testament with. All right, so I'm going to pray for our time, and then uh, we will jump into the book of Genesis. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that uh, these, this book we're going to just, just see very broadly this morning is all about you, that you are the creator behind it. You are the offspring of Abraham who, who blesses the nations, and so we... Uh, we just pray you help us see you this morning and enjoy you. And we pray just that uh, we could leave here this morning with a, a deeper sense that your word is precious and good um, and beneficial to our lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why 
do I have so much drama in my extended family? Uh, why are men and women, whether they are single or married, almost always missing each other? Always miscommunicating, always awkward around each other, uh, sometimes even striving against each other. Why is the world both beautiful and broken? Why is there beauty and backaches in my life? How come when I look in the mirror, I have this sense, this weird sense of glory and shame at the same time? These are all basic questions about human existence. Philosophers and novelists have written thousands of pages trying to address some of these basic questions. Everybody's got to wrestle with this. And uh, if you're a Christian, you, you could add a couple of particularly mystifying questions to this list. Why do I experience love for Jesus and yet resist him at almost every point in my life in which he challenges my will? Why does God often have to wreck my life before I learn lessons obvious to everyone but me? And uh, the answer to all these questions um, and all these questions about why our world the way it is and why we experience life the way we do are found in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a book about beginnings. It's a book about uh, where we started. And uh, if, you, uh, if you can just know where we started, you can understand your place in God's world and what it looks like to live in his world. So, again, like I said earlier, I'm going to start with uh, reading Genesis some help on going through this book and understanding it, and then we will uh, land on the message of Genesis. So a couple things about Genesis. Uh, Genesis was uh, most likely written by Moses. Uh, it was most likely written almost, almost certainly uh, to the people of Israel who were on the border of the Promised Land. So um, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, has the, the people of Israel. They're about, it's this group of 100,000 people, they're about to inherit this great blessing God has promised them. And it's probably there where Moses wrote these first five books of the Bible. Um, I think its purpose for them was to give them a sense uh, to help them understand who they were in God's world. Uh, second thing, Genesis is a narrative. This is perhaps the most important part about reading Genesis. Uh, sometimes we expect all of the books of the Bible to be like Romans or the Psalms. I can just open it. Any chapter I want to, look at a verse or two, it seems pretty applicable, and I can apply that immediately. Uh, Genesis is not like that. It's a story. Um, the, the whole book teaches a message. Um, the way plots go out, what happens, individual actions of characters aren't that important, but what happens to them is really important. Um, Genesis teaches through the story. So this book is broken up into three major sections. I wrote uh, this in green because I forgot to dress in green to St. Patrick's Day, so there's my contribution to American traditions. Green markers. Hopefully you guys can read them. Um, so there are three main sections of Genesis. Uh, the first section uh, is creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, most of you guys are probably pretty familiar with uh, the creation stories, but these, these stories are really uh, carefully crafted. They're almost poetic. There are some songs in them. There's this really clear structure. But the whole idea um, is that this this Pre-sin creation is just brimming with glory and life. There's this refrain in Genesis 1 and 2. Every time God creates something, it says, And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1 to 2 is the creation of this really good world. Uh, the second main section of Genesis, chapters uh, 3 to 11, 
are about the fall of man and the effects of the fall of man. So uh, in Genesis 3, very uh, famous story, you're probably well aware, uh, the devil tempts Adam and Eve, uh, who are in perfection, to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, he tells them they can be like God. In other words, they can be their own gods. And in this pattern of sin in our own lives, trying to be our own gods, Adam and Eve disobey, and it breaks the world. In fact, God curses the world, and Adam and Eve will now be sinners, and they will die. And what's important to remember is that the next uh, eight chapters of Genesis flush that out. There are all sorts of stories in here that uh, are kind of like bemusing to people. Uh, we've got Cain and Abel. We've got uh, just genealogies. We've got Noah and the flood. Um, we have the Tower of Babel, the Table of Nations. And the point of all these stories and the way they're crafted is to demonstrate here now is what life is going to be like in a fallen world because of sin. Um, and I, just look at Genesis 5 really quickly. Um, I, want, I want you to see how it's helpful to see this as we read the book. Genesis 5 is maybe the first place in a year-long read through the Bible plan where people get discouraged. It's your first genealogy. Uh, it repeats over and over again, so-and-so lived, so-and-so years. It just happens over and over and over again. Uh, and if you're, just, if you're not reading carefully, you're like, this is boring. What am I doing here? What's the point of this? But notice um, in verses 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, and 20, we see so-and-so lived such-and-such years, and he died. And he died over and over and over and over again. What is Moses' point here? God's word is true. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, everybody dies. Um, the, we will live in a world characterized by death. Things will always be decaying and dying. But there's just one guy, uh, Enoch, in verse 24. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. So apparently there's one guy who didn't die. And it's because he walked with God. We have a little picture, perhaps, a little whisper of the Lord Jesus here. All right, that's the second section, the fall and its effects. 3 through 11 are talking about life in a fallen world. And then the major section of Genesis, the big one, is Genesis 12 to 50. And this section is all about God's plan to bless the world through Abraham's family. God's plan to bless the world through Abraham's family. Uh, in Genesis 12, perhaps one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament, God calls Abraham to leave his house and his family. And he promises in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what's very interesting and a little crazy is that Genesis 1 to 11 covers tens of thousands of years, maybe, maybe much longer, maybe hundreds of thousands of years of human history. It covers unbelievable amounts of people. Maybe millions of people are just covered in 11 chapters. And then we have uh, 38 chapters on about 10 people over about 200 years. And uh, we ignore all world empires, everybody else in the world, to spend 38 chapters on this tiny little family. And the point of that is clear. This family is now the most important family in the world because they are the ones 
whom God has chosen to bless and save this fallen world through. Their offspring, their descendants, will be the most important people in the world. Um, and this brings us to our second part of reading Genesis. How do, I, how do I find Jesus in Genesis? So let's say you're a Christian, and you want to read your Old Testament, and you're thinking, all right, 6 a.m. Monday morning, I'm going to read Genesis 1 to 3 or whatever. Uh, how am I going to spend time with Jesus through this Old Testament book that does not say his name? Uh, here are a few thoughts. All right, first, the book of Genesis preaches to us our need for Jesus. It demonstrates in very clear and sometimes colorful and sometimes even hilarious ways our sin. Uh, it says things uh, like in Genesis 6-5 and, and 9-21 that the thoughts of mankind are evil continually. Um, that's speaking to us, to you this morning about your thoughts. They are evil continually. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like your thoughts are super evil, uh, but you've probably experienced how most of your thoughts are concerned about yourself, right? And how you're being treated and how you're being seen and how people are noticing you. Listen, the Bible says, like, you're, you're called to love God and others. Like, considering yourself and living in your own world, that's, that's living evil continually. It, that shows us our need for Christ. Uh, but I think even, even more helpfully, um, narratives can show us sin in really colorful ways. Uh, Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. We'll, we'll dive into this in, in a minute. But uh, right after Abraham is given the promises of God, he goes to a foreign land, gets nervous, and decides that he's going to basically sell his wife into prostitution to Pharaoh. He pretends that Sarah, his beautiful wife, is actually his sister, so that the Egyptians, so that Pharaoh will take her into his house, have relations with her, and bless him. And uh, that's a great picture. Ladies, how does that sound as a husband, right? That's God's man, right? Um, he hides behind his wife. Uh, throughout this book, we see, uh, we see women uh, fight over men. We see women manipulate and deceive men. We see uh, um, Isaac's wife, uh, Rebecca. This is uh, Abraham's son, Isaac. His wife, Rebecca, um, helps trick her blind husband. Because she likes one son better than the other. Uh, we see women like Leah and Rachel, um, who are Jacob's wives, fight over him. Um, I think, guys, that'll preach our, the dating game, deceiving other people to get what you want, putting on a front. Genesis shows us all those things, all of those relational things we do so intuitively. They make us desperate. We need Jesus. Uh, second, Genesis shows us God's plan for salvation. It shows us that God accomplishes salvation. God chooses not to enact a great set of rules to save people. He chooses uh, to bless and save the world through the offspring of one man. Abraham's offspring. Um, who we see through the New Testament, is none other than Jesus Christ. That is God's plan. And he accomplishes his plan in miraculous, unthinkable ways. Um, Sarah and Abraham are a hundred years old. They are older probably than anyone in this church is right now before they have the promised child, Isaac. Over and over again, God is doing strange, weird things to accomplish salvation. That's the gospel. The gospel is God 
using something impossible and miraculous and even weak in Jesus to save. All right, third thing, difficulties in Genesis. All right, I just want to do two really quickly. Um, these are things you'll probably hear pretty commonly uh, in our culture. I want to address them quickly. We can talk more at the end, and then we'll get to the really good stuff. Um, so first, in Genesis, there is the scientific difficulty. There's the historical timeline difficulty. Is, is Genesis an accurate picture of human history? We live in an age now where we have a fossil record that tells us, that seems to tell us that uh, the world is millions or perhaps billions of years old. Genesis makes it sound more like the world is about 10,000 years old. Uh, there's also lots of weird questions. I remember one time we, I had, uh, I had you guys submit questions for like, question, uh, for like hard questions. And uh, one of the questions was, who was Cain's wife? So uh, if you don't know that story, uh, Cain and Abel were the first children. Uh, they had the first sibling fight. Cain actually killed his brother Abel. Uh, that's all we read. And then one, a couple of verses later, he has a wife. And we're like, where did that wife come from? So there are all these questions about um, Genesis. So a couple, couple ways I like to handle this. Um, first, uh, it's very helpful to remind yourself that the Bible, and particularly Genesis, was not written to address scientific and modern questions. In fact, it was written to address much more important questions. Let me ask you this. Would you rather have Genesis tell you um, the exact date of the earth or how you can be saved? Like, would you rather have it tell you where did Cain's wife come from or how can I live in God's world in such a way to be blessed by him? So Genesis is concerned with the much more important questions. It's not, it's not written to um, tap your curiosities. Um, so, so one way I like, to, I like to think about this that, that really helps me is that if we have a plausible possibility um, for the things Genesis explains, we can honor it as true and not worry about it too much. Let me explain this. So, so let's just answer the question, who is Cain, where did Cain's wife come from? You guys can just go to Genesis 4 if you want to very quickly. Okay, uh, Genesis 4, 17. Uh, we have no idea that Cain, that there were any other people on the earth besides Cain, Adam, and Eve. And in Genesis 4.17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So all of a sudden, he has this woman <coughs> pop up, and they get married, and they have kids. And we don't have any account of Adam and Eve having uh, a daughter or, or God creating another woman. So we're like, where does this person come from? All right. Uh, notice uh, Genesis 5, verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So my guess, a plausible possibility, is that Cain married one of the sisters, like everybody did when there's only one family on the earth, right? Uh, he married a, one of these other daughters of Adam. Uh, notice also, Adam probably actually lived 800 years, so you can have lots of children if you live until you're 800. I mean, I can't imagine how many you could have. But anyways, um, all I'm saying is when you, when you encounter these difficulties, uh, the Bible does not have to give you an exhaustive, comprehensive account of everything that's happened to be utterly true and perfect. I want you all to hear that. Uh, when we, uh, people, people approach Genesis critically, they approach it thinking, this better answer my questions about the dinosaurs. And the Bible is not concerned with the dinosaurs and what happened to them and how old they were. It's concerned with, man, how do I live in God's world? So that's the first difficulty. Here's the second one. Uh, it's a moral difficulty. What about polygamy? 
Um, you've probably heard this objection or maybe asked it, does the Bible say polygamy is okay? Uh, if not, which we kind of assume obviously it's not okay, then why do all or almost all of the characters in Genesis have multiple wives and seemingly get away with it? How is God cool with that? Why is he using people who practice polygamy? Um, let me just say, first of all, one thing you may want to recognize about Genesis is it's very open that every one of its characters were sinners. In fact, uh, uh, we see some accounts from our heroes here that are really, like, think about what Abraham did. Like, he hid behind his wife. Like, he let his wife go into another man's house because he was nervous or scared. That's not, that's not, a, that's not a moral person you look up to, right? Um, so, so just know that. It's, it's, I am okay with a main character in Genesis falling into sin. That happens. Um, but specifically, in Genesis 2.24, God establishes one man and one woman. Uh, he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the singular verbs there. A man, his wife, one flesh. And almost every example of polygamy in the book of Genesis does not go well. The first guy who had two wives, uh, he's in Genesis 4. His name is Lamech, uh, Genesis 4:19. Lamech took two wives. Two verses later, we're hearing about how Lamech loves to murder people. So there's a great example, right? Yeah, polygamy and murder. They're the same. Like the author's doing that intentionally. He's not approving polygamy here. Uh, and then we go through the book and we... Uh, uh, we just see every single time one of these main characters takes a second wife, really stupid things start happening, really bad things happen. Uh, the moment, uh, and I, I don't know the exact chapter this is in, Genesis 16, okay? Abraham and Sarai seem to be very happily married. And then uh, they decide that uh, Abraham should start uh, sleeping with Hagar to try to have a son for him. He, he's basically from polygamous. Things don't go well. They're fighting immediately. Genesis 30. Girls, if you ever feel like you've been in a bad place with one of your girlfriends or one of your sisters before, I want you to read Genesis 30 and be encouraged, okay? Uh, Leah and Rachel um, have a battle over who can have more babies because they want their husband's affections. That is just a situation we were never meant to be in. Polygamy is not approved of here. Uh, the author is showing us um, that it is wrong. So I think what we see, this whole polygamy question, uh, is really just a great example of God's people caving in to a cultural practice. Polygamy was very normal in the ancient Near East. So if you're wondering why God let Abraham get away with it, maybe you should wonder why God lets you get away with everything you do that caves into your culture. Okay, So uh, that is some help reading Genesis, I hope. Those are the contents. We've got three big sections. Creation, the fall and its effects, and God's plan. Uh, hopefully those questions were helpful. We can, we can talk about it in a moment. All right. But now I want to get to the message of the book. And so uh, if you felt like the last 15 minutes were more educational and you're wondering, Leland, I want this to actually come into my life this week, that's what we're about to do. I want, I want the, the next part of this lesson to be more transformational. We don't want to learn things without our, our lives changing. So the message of Genesis, there are two things that Genesis teaches. First, it teaches us about God's world and how we fit in that world. And it teaches us about God's ways, how he works in the world. Go to Genesis 1.1. Should not be too hard to find, I hope. Genesis 1.1. We only need uh, 
We only need four words. In the beginning, God. Um, these are so common, they're almost white noises. But just notice, basically before the beginning, God was there. In fact, God, God started the universe. He began creation. He existed before. He's, he existed above creation. Um, and the one who begins, the one who creates, has a right over his creation. You don't talk back to the guy who started the universe. You don't question him. Um, in fact, in Genesis 18, when uh, God's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham realizes, he says, will not the judge of the earth do right? That's who God is. God stands above the earth. He does not answer to us. Um, an apologist once said, if you can just believe Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible is actually pretty easy. So uh, there's all sorts of miracles the Bible shows us that can be hard for modern people to believe. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, difficulties, moral difficulties, all that stuff, okay? But if you can just believe Genesis 1-1, that before the beginning God existed, and from the overflow of his nature, he created the heavens and the earth, that this entire universe belongs to him, not to us. If you believe that, everything else is pretty easy. But uh, more than that, I say, this to my, I, I say this to my kids a lot. Um, they'll start trying to boss me around or make all these demands with me. I'll say, hey, sweetheart, who's the boss? And they'll be like, you aren't daddy. You know, like, and then I'll just kind of uh, redirect them to remembering that I'm the authority in their lives. And they actually, I love them and I care for them, but they don't boss me around. That's not our relationship. We're not buddies. They, they, they give and take. No, no, I'm the, the guy giving authority in their lives, you know. And um, uh, if you want to take something in your life this week from Genesis, take this. God is the boss. This is his world. You are a creature living in God's world. You're not the creator. You don't get to impose your will over your life. You don't get to expect that, that life and people are going to rearrange themselves around you and your desires. You're a creature. Um, even if you were sinless and perfect, God could do whatever he liked with your life because you belong to him and he created you. And as a sinner, wow, how much more can he do whatever he wishes with you? And I think from that place, from that place of fundamental humility, just about who you are, that is where thankfulness and joy begin. All right, if, you look, if, you look, if you look at yourself and you say, man, I'm a creature. God is allowed to do whatever he wishes to me. I'm a sinner. God should give me judgment and death right now. And I get to drink coffee in the morning. I get a bed to sleep on. I have people who know my name, right? Like I have clothes to wear. This is amazing. Thankfulness and joy begin when you remember that you did not make the universe. You don't own your life. Second thing, it's God, for first it's God's world. Second, God's world is good. Uh, we can't spend as much time here. Um, but Genesis 1 to 2, even though it's so short, unfortunately, just shows us the glory and goodness of God's creation. Again, that, ref that, that refrain, God saw that it was good. Uh, even, after, uh, even after humanity ruins it, and we see all this ruin in Genesis, we see lots of good things. We see a guy, Jacob, who falls in love and who enjoys that. 
Uh, we see the joy of children. Um, we see people enjoying delicious food. There's this phrase in uh, Isaac uh, loves his son Esau because Esau made him delicious food. We see all this goodness in God's world. First uh, Timothy 4 says this, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Uh, one pastor has said, If you love God first and foremost, it is impossible to love the created world too much. Hear that again. If you love God first, as in if you're willing to give up anything for his sake, it is impossible to love the created world too much. So maybe you apply Genesis 1 to 2 today by taking a deep breath of fresh air or just wondering at the glory of lunch, maybe of Cain's fried chicken, uh, or you just... You just have a moment where you're blown away of what it's like to be an eternal soul made in God's image who gets to talk to other eternal souls made in God's image. Just let some wonder of God's world invade your life. So the world is God's. God's world is good. God's world is also broken. Genesis tells a story. Again, it's a story. It's a tragic story uh, that this good world has been broken by sin, that people are inherently evil. Um, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, there's this fourth one, Prince Caspian. It's pretty ignored until the, the movie got made out of it, but anyways, uh, there's this guy, Caspian, and uh, at the end of the book, he's kind of having an identity crisis. He's wondering who he is, and uh, here is what Aslan says to him. Aslan represents Jesus. He says this, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. I think that's a great place to start with identity. Whatever our stories or our race or our situations, who are we? We are Adam and Eve's children. We are broken but glorious. But more than that, uh, because God is good and just and he must, he must speak truth to us, uh, he has cursed our physical world because of sin. Uh, he has made a world, he's allowed a world where difficulty and pain and brokenness occur because he must speak the truth to us about the consequences of sin. He must not allow us to live in our selfishness, in our sin, in a comfortable, easy, perfect, uh, unhampered world. Right after Adam and Eve's sin, God tells them, here's how it's going to be. He looks at Adam and says, hey, from now on, your job, the world you live in is going to be cursed. The ground will not bear its strength. You'll have to sweat. Life will be difficult. Work will be difficult. He looks at Eve right after he looks at Adam. He says, your relationships are going to be cursed. You and your husband are going to fight over dominance in your relationship. Your childbearing is going to be cursed. And now today, of course, we feel that, right? You guys, you guys see this in your lives. But I, but I, I, want, I, want, I, want, to, I want to help you guys understand your place in God's world. It should not surprise you when you encounter difficulties. Um, when your life is touched by the curse, when you have work difficulty or lose your job, when you have relational difficulty and you just can't imagine how stubborn someone else can be, that does not mean God's left you. 
does not mean that, you're, that, that somehow he's left the building. This is the world we live in. Um, and it's the world we deserve. I want you to hear that from me. Um, now, I don't, I don't, the Bible does not teach that this struggle is in my life is because of this sin. I don't think God typically works that way. Sometimes that happens, but I don't think typically. But uh, why is there cancer from the world? Why is there sexual assault? Why is there famine? Because of our sin. That's why it exists. The world we live in that's so hard and so painful, we deserve. And again, again, this is helpful because it helps us to live with a posture of humility. There is absolutely nothing bad that can happen to me that at some level I do not deserve. And everything good that happens to me is something I do not deserve. So, embrace humility. And I think, too, uh, we can chiefly apply the book of Genesis and its teaching on our broken world uh, by stopping our search for Eden here in this life. Eden was lost, guys. We will not find it here and now. Um, here's what the book of Hebrews says about the main characters of Genesis. Here's what they... Here's what uh, example they commend to us. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like that, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they'd gone, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, and hear this, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. I think one way we can live in a broken world is by living for a heavenly country. We talked about that again and again and again and again in Revelation. Uh, but here it is in the first book of the Bible. This world is not our home. So this is God's world. It belongs to him. God's world is good. And God's world is broken. The second thing Genesis teaches primarily in Genesis 12 through 50 is God's ways in God's world, how he works, how he acts. And God's ways in God's world is this. God is determined to bless his people. God is determined to bless his people. We see this in a ton of ways, particularly in his ways with Abraham's family. Go back to uh, Genesis 12. Notice again this, uh, this passage of Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 uh, through 3. This is, again, maybe the most important passage in Genesis, maybe in the whole Old Testament. God calls Abram to go. Abraham takes that by faith. Verse 2, God promises, I will make of you a great nation. He promises again in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice, there is not a condition in this promise except that Abraham goes. God is saying, I will bless you. And then, Abraham, like I said earlier, hides behind his wife and commits this great sin. He becomes responsible for his wife's adultery. It kind of is crazy. Um, and I think we'd expect, maybe if we were later in the Old Testament, we'd expect God to judge him or to leave him. But we see here in chapter 12, verse 17, the Lord delivers him. The Lord afflicts Pharaoh, not Abraham, Pharaoh, and delivers Abraham 
And then 15 verses later in Genesis 13, 14, God promises to Abraham again. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. I will give this land to you and your offspring forever. What's God's response to Abraham's sin? It's a promise. God's determined to bless this man and his family. He blesses his people in the midst of their sins. Listen, this morning, if you've come in this room with a great history full of sins, if right now you are wrestling with something, God is determined to bless you through it. Your lack of faithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. When he promises, if you're one of Jesus' people, if you received him by faith, if you've trusted him, he's determined to bless you, even in the midst of your sin. Now, that doesn't mean Genesis did not teach you go and sin, all right? We see consequences for sin all through this book. But it does say God blesses his people in spite of their sin. Abraham's not the only, only guy. Actually, his son Isaac does the exact same thing with his wife, Jacob. Later on, uh, Isaac's son, uh, over and over again, Jacob is stealing and deceiving and lying and trying to get his way. And God just keeps promising. God blesses his people in the midst or in spite of their sin. Second, we learn that God blesses his people in the midst of their circumstances. Listen, here's the plot of Genesis 12 to 50, all right? A group of homeless people wander the wilderness. They're always searching for food. There's always strife between them and the inhabitants. They're always making mistakes. And again and again and again, they leave the last city with more more possessions than they came with. They're always protected. God's always preserving. He's always helping. God is able to bless his people in the midst of their circumstances. Uh, Joseph, who's uh, Abraham's great-great-grandson, is the chief example here. In Genesis uh, 37, Genesis 37 to 50 is all about Joseph, but in Genesis 37, his brothers sell him into slavery. So if you think your siblings have a bad relationship with you, I don't think you're here, okay? His brothers sell him into slavery. Um... But here's the rest of the story. In his slavery, Joseph is blessed by God, and he becomes the second in command of a great house in Egypt. Then the evil wife of his master uh, makes a false sexual assault allegation, gets Joseph thrown into prison. And guess what? God blesses Joseph, and he becomes in charge of the prison. And then eventually God raises Joseph up uh, to become the ruler of Israel. And through Joseph, the entire world is safe from famine through him. God blesses his people in the midst of his circumstances. But he also uh, doesn't just bless in circumstances. He teaches through circumstances. Uh, God sometimes, in this story, gives people particular trials and particular circumstances that reveal sin and demonstrate sin. Uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, is probably the best example of this. Uh, Jacob is Isaac's younger son, and he does everything in his power to have his best life now and to have his dreams come true. Uh, He's a younger brother. Back in the ancient Near East, the younger brother's basically got nothing. The older brother got everything. So over and over again, he's deceiving his brother and uh, even deceiving his blind father uh, to steal his brother's blessing. And he gets it. 
but it almost cost him his life. And then uh, he has to run away from his big brother because his big brother's going to kill him. And uh, he runs away to his, his uh, distant relatives, and he meets the love of his life. And he does everything possible to have her, even accidentally marrying her sister and then marrying her right after that. But here's a circumstance that God gives Jacob. He gives him an uncle who tricks him. He gives him an uncle who deceives him. And then he gives Jacob years of marital misery. Uh, if you read these accounts, I just recommend to you Genesis 30 and 31. Um, it's just a marriage in misery. And why does God give that to Jacob? It helps teach him the consequences of his sin. It helps teach him, here's what happens when you take life into your own hands and you pursue your dreams without me. And you treat everybody else like a doormat as you do so. So God teaches and blesses through circumstances. And finally, God is determined to bless his people because he's determined to bless the world through his people. Notice back in Genesis 12, 3, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God blesses his people because they will be the means of blessing the world. He preserves Abraham in the middle of his sins. He, he delivers Abraham from these circumstances. He works, he continues, because his heart and his plan are for all of the nations to be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And of course, later in the New Testament, we see that. We see how from Abraham eventually comes Jesus Christ, who blesses the nations with salvation. We talk about mission and unbelievers a lot here in the Young Adults Ministry. We talk a lot about uh, living our lives to reach them, about living sacrificially. And you might wonder, why are we always talking about this? This isn't Leland Likes. No, this is all over the Bible. You can't get 10 pages into your Bible without reading about God's heart for the nations and for the lost. Okay, but just consider uh, this morning, in the middle of your mess and of your misery, God is determined, if you know Jesus, to bless you. He is determined to give you what is best. And we, uh, we see through this book that God will do whatever it takes in your life, in the circumstances of your life, in the things you're dealing with, to give you his best, to bless you, to make you a blessing. I'm just say if you're, if you're wrestling with doubts or fear, you can just rest on his promise. God is more trustworthy than your emotions are. His word is more trustworthy than your circumstances or, or how you're doing. You can rest on him. But the takeaway I want to give you guys, we're about to close, but the takeaway I want you to leave this room here is uh, sometimes, most of the time, uh, God's methods of blessing us often depend on our responses to him. I want you to leave that. I want, that, I want to leave that with you. God's methods of blessing us often depend upon our responses to him. Again, Jacob, maybe one of the most fun characters to read through this book. You know, God gives him the gift of a crushed dream and a terrible marriage to his dream girl to humble him and teach him. Jacob still gets God's blessing. God still is faithful to him. But here's Jacob's uh, reflection on his life in Genesis 47, 9. Maybe, maybe put this on your, uh, on your tombstone one day. Okay, here's what it says. The days of my sojourning are 130 years. Okay. Few and evil have been the days of my life. 
And most of the evil in Jacob's life was his own fault. He took what God put in front of him and banged his head against the wall over and over again. And God gave Jacob difficult circumstances directed towards his heart because Jacob was too stubborn to listen to God's word. That's what happened. I'm not saying that's what happened in your life, but that's what will happen. God loves you so much. He's so determined to bless you that if you resist humbly listening to his word, humbly listening to God's wisdom, responding to him, submitting to him, God is going to jack your life up because he's determined to bless you. He refuses to leave you in your sin. But Jacob had a son, Joseph, and look at Joseph's perspective on his life. We can, we can close with this. Uh, Genesis 50. Joseph has risen to power. He is now the ruler of the most mighty nation in the world. Uh, and his 11 brothers, who beat him up and sold him into slavery, are now cowering before him. And they're pleading for their lives, because, you know, Joseph could easily kill them all. Um, and here is, uh, here's what Joseph says as he reflects on his life and on what his brothers did to him. Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Joseph looks back on his life full of suffering, even though he was innocent, full of difficulty, full of trial, full of nights where it feels like God has left him. And he looks back and he says, God meant this for good. And he not only uh, refuses to harm the guys who hurt him, he blesses them. He provides for them. And what, what, what Joseph has done through his life, he's not been perfect, but he has responded humbly to God's world. The choice here is not, will you have a life with difficult circumstances or will you have an easy life? That's not a choice. All of you will have difficulties. All of you will have trials and circumstances. The choice is, will I respond to God's ways in my life by being stubborn and refusing and and resisting him and have all the trial from that? Or will I respond by humbly submitting myself to him and experiencing blessing in the midst of my trial? And will I speak the message of Genesis right here? People meant it for evil and God meant it for good. God's blessing. Will I be able to speak that? So, we live in God's world. It is beautiful and broken, and he is determined to bless us. Embrace that blessing. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thanks for this book. Uh, I pray you would encourage our hearts through it and use it in our lives. I even pray just for people who really just have never read the Old Testament. I pray you just really give them a heart for that and really work in their lives through that. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.